Welcome everybody to the November version of the CNS Journal Club podcast. Today we're excited to talk about uh, the independent predictors of revision lumbar fusion outcomes. We'll start out by introducing our author and our guest faculty, and then we'll move on to discussing the paper. Our main author comes from Thomas Jefferson University. Would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, hello. Um, my name is Jim Harrop. I'm a neurosurgeon at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. Wonderful. And our guest faculty is coming to us from Baptist Health in South Florida. Would you mind introducing yourself as well? Absolutely. Good morning, guys. Um, my name is Raul Vasquez. I'm uh, one of the uh, revision uh, complex spine surgeons here at Baptist Health uh, South Florida. Great. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us today. So we'll go ahead and get started. Um, Dr. Harrop, can you give us a brief overview of this paper? I'm happy to. So this, uh, this paper comes out of a uh, I recently got my master's in quality improvement and patient uh, safety. And as part of that, we actually went back and we looked at, uh, set up a prospective uh, database and a prospective uh, study looking at indications for spine surgery. Uh, based on that, we went through and graded all patients that went on to get lumbar fusions and uh, um, to see if they met what the NAS defined as a guideline for, um, for indications. We rated them and then followed the patients out using their ODI at six months. We used uh, patient satisfactions based on the OCDI under minimal clinical difference and declared success with a with a 10-point improvement in their ODI. Um, so we had this database and then we went back and we said, what are variables are, are important to different people? And uh, we showed that if you if physicians followed guidelines, they actually had the was the single biggest predictor of a successful outcome in terms of patient improvement. Then we went back and we said, are there other variables that influence patient's outcome? And one of the ones we, we thought was, there's a lot of literature out there that, that uh, your best shot with a patient is their primary surgeon and patients don't do as well as in their secondary, sur secondary surgeries or revision surgeries. And we did find that uh, in, this, in, in this paper. Uh, and then we went on and uh, looked at having the same surgeon and a different surgeon. And that's how we broke it out. And I think we can get into the discussion. Is that the real message behind this paper? And as it turns out, if you had a different surgeon do your revision, you tended to do better than the same surgeon do the surgery. And I, I, just to, to start to talk off, I don't think that's the total summary of the paper in terms of you shouldn't take home the conclusion, I should go to a second surgeon if I have a problem. And I think uh, we'll probably get into that a little bit as we go on. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's definitely going to be the crux of this conversation. Um, I think it's a really interesting topic because I imagine a lot most surgeons wish to perform their own revision surgeries to you know take ownership of their patients and the complications that might happen. Um, so it's an interesting idea that it might, it might actually turn out to be better if a different surgeon performs the revision. Um, but I, I think as you indicated, there's lots of other factors that are at play here that aren't necessarily just the independent surgeon. Um, so no, let's kick off. Oh, oh sorry. No, please go gonna, ahead. I was going to say, you know, you bring up a great, great point. And I think one of the things that, you know, I only see is what the mind knows philosophy. If you do the same thing and you make a mistake, it's always good to get another opinion. And so I think one of the, one of the take-home messages or one of the messages should be that, you know, even if you yourself have a problem or a complication, you can still be the same surgeon, but you probably should benefit from getting other people to look at the problem um, because 
most spine problems tend not to be errors in technique. They tend to be more errors in how we think about things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Dr. Vasquez, did you have a few questions uh, to bring up? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really exciting article. I think everyone should read and, and review this article in detail like uh, we have done. It's gonna be very exciting, the publication. Uh, because, uh, I mean, more and more, you know, we see this aging population, the increasing number of, of spine surgeries performed, uh, and with it, more and more revisions. You know, I, I do think this article uh, brings a lot of insight on uh, revision surgery, which is a, a really real challenge, independent of your, if you're the primary or, or, or secondary surgeon the burden, the cost, and it brings a lot on what Dr. Harab is saying is his indications, you know, the, the clinical decision-making, the approach, the levels, the, the evaluation of uh, deformities and, and post-laminectomy syndrome, you know, challenges on avoidance, uh, this from happening. So I do think um, uh, it is uh, a good um, article in terms of bringing a more, more inside in terms of the comprehensive approach, how uh, I, I like to tell uh, even some of my residents and trainees and, and, and colleagues that there's no small or big surgery. I mean, and small surgery can turn into a, a big revision surgery. So uh, I think I like the approach of having multiple opinions, you know, like even a dedicated spine conference. Uh, and especially when you have to revise or, or return to the OR for um, whatever reason. So um, one of the, the findings on the on the on this article, which he, he actually called my attention, you know, I think is something that we have to discuss is that the, the fact of the confirmation bias, right? How these patients uh, decided to go to another surgeon for their revision surgery and why is that that happening entirely? Uh, so you know, one of my first questions to Dr. Harrell would be, how, how do you explain uh, the time spent between that index surgery and the revision surgery that it was greater, um, that time was greater for the patients that went to a different surgeon? Would, would these like further suggest to you that there was a, a component of confirmation bias there? So I'm actually I'm gonna step back a little bit, a little bit, and that's a great question though. So first of all, when we looked at success and we, we said it was uh, meeting the MCID, when we look at the total group using a different surgeon, it was about eight, uh, 60% with about the same surgeon was 40%. If you, if you really look into the numbers, um, some of that, the mean or the change in the difference was a lot, lot bigger with different surgeon than standard of deviation. But now with that saying is, is, I think, and unfortunately, we weren't able to tease this out because we didn't have enough patients. I think we might be looking at two different populations. Uh, if you go back and you're, you, you sent me a, uh, another question that I thought was excellent, I'm going to unfortunately answer, answer this question using both, both, the, both the questions you asked me. Yeah. But if you look at the two things that were different in the populations is the same surgeon's patients tended to be younger and also the time between their first surgery and their second surgery tended to be shorter in the same surgeon. So if you think about your practice, you probably have a practice, someone doesn't do that well, you try to non-operatively treat them and then you reoperate on them. Um, 
that patient did not do as well as I'm going to give the second scenario is a patient had surgery and the different surgeon, the mean was 65, 63 months. And so that group is, you're almost five years out from your first surgery, which means, okay, what, what happens in five years? Most surgeons, actually, if you look at the mean for when surgeons change their practice, it's about four years. So I think in that case is I had my surgery by Dr. X. I did very well. Life was great. And I developed adjacent level disease. And now I'm seeking out another surgeon. Uh-oh, my surgeon's moved. So now I need a revision operation. Who am I going to go to? And that they, they might be going more towards, you know, our hospital, we do about 50% of the spine cases. We do our revisions. And so we tend to get a lot of revisions referred to us. And so I think that's why we might get the second population. And so I totally agree with your comment that, yeah, there is a bias. Uh, and, you know, and that's the problem with doing retrospective reviews. Um, but that was an excellent question, an excellent point of weakness in the paper. And, and to follow that up, we actually are trying to tease that out because this, this uh, database has now grown and we have a much larger group of patients. So I'm hoping to be able to answer specifically, is it the, if you, if you look at the uh, paper, the procedures didn't change or actually what operation you did didn't change the outcome. But I think uh, we'll be able to figure that with a larger end. I think also a component is like which you mentioned, right? Like there's the there are different kinds of revisions, right? Like uh, there's the the immediate revision because uh, uh, a retropulse cage or like a failure, an immediate failure of the instrumentation versus a a revision that is after many many years for acquired deformity or. So that I think um, that that'll be interesting to to see in terms of like the 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 kind of revision and and the election for a different surgeon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have also Dr. Dr. Tiffany Hodges. Would you did you have any questions for us? Definitely. Thank you, Dr. Harrop, for spending the time with us today. Um, a couple of questions. Um, were any of the initial surgeries performed uh, specifically by neurosurgeons or orthopedic surgeons, um, or were they 100% neurosurgeons? So, so that's actually a great question. If, if you, another bias is we are a neurosurgery department. And so we actually, all the patients for the same surgeries would be the people at Jefferson operating on their own patients. So that would be surgeon on uh, neurosurgeon on neurosurgeon. We didn't quantify or look at uh, specifically uh, orthopedic versus neurosurgical um, who operated on them the first time. And then this revision operation was always a neurosurgeon because again, it was a neurosurgical department. So I guess for my orthopedic colleagues, no, I'm not suppressing any data to benefit the neurosurgeons. And um, kind of within that same vein, um, were all of these surgeries whether initial or uh, revision completed at the same hospital, you know, like sometimes within a hospital system, there could be community hospitals that are within the umbrella, um, but were they all done at the main, you know, hub? These were all done uh, downtown Philadelphia at what we call the, the, the you know, the main campus of, of Jefferson University. So yes, all the second operations, the primary surgeons, again, necessarily weren't all done at Jefferson. So, and just, just to expand on that, I guess 
you know, the message isn't, isn't also that, hey, you should go have a different surgery from a different surgeon at another hospital. Um, there was probably even a little bit of crossover between patients seeing a different person in our own department. But, uh, you know, it's definitely not come to the academic center. They, their surgeries are so much better than the community hospitals. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, it's um, this bring also uh, uh, another point in, in when it comes to, to revision or reoperation on a patient, right? It's not, nothing more, more humbling than, than a patient that had a complication and comes back to you, uh, to the, uh, the same patient, the same, the same surgeon. Um, uh, it's uh, about the, the understanding of um, the, the group uh, approach when, like Dr. Harrop said, like uh, consulting with, with colleagues and, and different uh, I think this this paper bring that that point out very well as well. And the other thing that the sobering thing when I did this paper when I looked at it is we don't do as great as I think I think I did. You know, there's nothing worse than looking at objective data because you talk to your patients and you feel good, and then you look at the you know the ODIs, and really only about fifty percent of the patients really did objectively very good based on their surgery, and so that's one area where you're kind of like, okay, the other thing we didn't pull out, is this an error of operative technique, operative planning, or is this an area of judgment who to operate on? And I think that's something we as spine surgeons have to start trying to dig dip deeper into finding you know, the ideal patient in the ideal operation. I think Dr. Vasquez brings up a very excellent point as well. You know, I'm a cancer neurosurgeon and we have a tumor board where all of the patients get discussed pre-op, post-op. And I think one of the kind of the highlights from this paper that I gleaned from is that it's important to have different eyes on the case um, and to get a lot of different opinions to, um, you know, fresh perspectives, different approaches um, to evaluate. From this paper, would you recommend, you know, having some type of, you know, spine conference or our discussion to discuss these patients um, just to get some fresh perspectives on different approaches that you could take. I, I know kind of anecdotally, you know, this is great for um, neurosurgeons coming fresh out of training or fellowship. And when they're getting their first cases, you know, within the first six months to a year, I'm sure they run their cases by their, their seniors or um, folks who trained them or their mentors uh, to get fresh opinions, just to make sure that what they're doing is optimal. So I, I think that is such a great question, and, and I'll, I'll go back a little bit. One of the reasons this whole idea came up was I struggled with all the variability I saw with indications on what to treat for lumbar spine. Why do you fuse? And it was very interesting because the residents had no idea. If you ask a first-year resident, what's the indication to operate on a lumbar spine, uh, spine you're going to be amazed because we don't communicate very well what the parameters should be. Uh, so we have a conference every week and every Monday morning, and we go over every lumbar spine fusion that's going to be done at Jefferson for that week. And we talk about it. And we talk about the indications. We look at the patient, their history, and their images. And, you know, probably about 5 to 10% of the time, maybe not even that high, we'll go back to the attending and say, hey, is this your plan? Was there a mistake in the, the you know, the report? Number one. And number two is I think I've seen the residents really start going, okay, 
a deformity is X. And there's much more black and white between what is an indicated operation and what is not an indicated operation. And, and I think as we look towards the future, I think one of the things we need to do is really help to find, you know, who does well with a surgery and who doesn't do well with a surgery. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I agree entirely. I mean, I think uh, the more and more uh, you, you practice and, and now with the, with the current evidence, you know, especially with the patient reported, re reported outcomes and all these studies, like I think met, this is uh, spine is turning more towards an in, individualized care. You know, we have indications, but then you say, no, that's totally indicated, but then you have a, a psychotic patient or a patient that is not suitable to uh, a major uh, correction surgery because he is not compliant or uh, his, his bone metabolics are not uh, appropriate. Um, so we that's where it gets really gray, really complex, and, you know, just to add another level of complexity that then now we're dealing with a, a tailored kind of like individualized uh, spine care medicine. I, I so much agree with you. And it, it's interesting. If you look at the numbers, I think in this paper, 17 or 18% of the patients were tobacco users. And that, that it kind of astounded me because I believe, or maybe I believed that I don't operate on anyone who smokes because I make people to stop smoke beforehand. And so you're, you're common about uh, patients smoking, uh, you know, individualizing patients and doing it best we can to, to optimize their care. Now I'm going to give a, I'm going to give a little infomercial for a second. Uh, the CNS, the spine section actually just uh, published a series. And I think we're going to do a podcast in next, uh, next month or several months on perioperative guidelines for spine care and spine fusions. And so, you know, one of the things that I learned that was amazing about that is you really shouldn't operate on anyone with the hemoglobin 1AC greater than 7.5 because they have three-time complication rate. So look out for that podcast down the road. No, looking forward to, to listen to that. Yeah, because uh, uh, one of my, my theories too, like patients with severe uh, fail uh, neuropsych testing, they should not be operated on. <laughs> hey, old enough to tell you, I totally agree with that one. <laughs> I think that's a great idea because um, the spine conferences I've seen typically focus on the complex spine or the ones where certain people have a specific question, um, you know, regarding a level or an operative approach. But I think it's a, a fantastic idea to decide to review all reoperations or all fusions as a teaching point. And I think a lot of times when we discuss these as a group, we actually find out that there's a lot of opinions about certain approaches or certain um, plans for spine surgery. And I'm, I'm very hopeful that if if we as a group of surgeons decide to be more inclusive in our spine conference um, discussions, that perhaps we can cut down on some of these reoperation rates, like you said, by potentially narrowing in on better patient uh, populations and better better selection. Yeah, and I actually want to reach out to my my partners and just you know, I'm very lucky to have a group of partners that are unbelievably willing to share their patient data. And that's one of the things I think as surgeons, we need to do that more. Uh, some of us like to hold our cards close to the vest, but I really think we need to 
you know, you have a complication. We should be talking about it, have it out in the open, discuss how we can pr- improve things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dr. Harriper, I suppose any anybody here, um, do you think the outcomes of this paper, at, at least as it stands now, would change your practice in any way? For instance, would you ever potentially offer one of your partners uh, a patient to reoperate on or perhaps offer the patient seeing one of your partners or something like that um, based on this data? Or do you think we're not quite there yet? I think it's... Uh... I guess what well again there's numerous is uh, limitations to this patient to this paper, but I do think that uh, it's an excellent idea to share. If you have a problem, it, you might not have seen something, and someone looking at it from a different angle. And, and I'll give you my own experience since I uh, have been around for a while. We used to operate on all of our patients with what they call a Jackson Jackson table which was a very, uh, it was a great because it opened up the spine and you did your surgery and then you put your screws in. And what we found out in retrospect is that we were fusing these people with flat backs. That probably would not have been known today if there weren't other people looking from different angles and, you know, it's pretty much changed the way we look at spine surgery. And so I think, you know, as I said at the beginning of the case, the, the eye doesn't always see what the mind knows excuse me, the eye only sees what the mind knows. Absolutely. Well, I think we're nearing the end of our time here. Do we have any last minute questions or any other thing, topics to discuss? I'm gonna, I'm gonna give one more infomercial out for a paper in neurosurgery that we wrote about uh, probably two or three months ago, which would, by the time this comes out, maybe six months ago. And it was called, Our Guidelines Important. Uh, I, I really think that's an interesting paper to read because what it showed well, to me was you can look at, and we looked at every variable I could think about, surgeon, procedure, type of surgeon, how the surgeon did it, smokers, non-smokers, it was something like 30 or 40 variables. And the biggest predictor odds ratio of three times was for a successful first surgery was to follow evidence-based guidelines. Awesome. Awesome. Right, that, and I agree with that. Excellent. Well, that was a fantastic discussion. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, and look for the full version of this article coming in the October publication of JNS. Um, for all our listeners, please continue to follow up with us as every month we'll continue to do a, a CNS Journal Club podcast. And as a reminder, this podcast offers 1.5 CME credit through the CNS website. Um, it's complimentary to all CNS members. We encourage you to check it out there. And thanks again to everybody for joining us and we'll see you next month.